Hello, my name is Brett. It's good to see all of you, especially those who are new to us today. Thank you for joining us and making us your church home for an hour today. And thank you for watching online. We welcome you you to our house. And another thank you for all of you who have participated, either by way of giving, praying, or working with your hands, giving your service, and what you just saw on the video. Outstanding. I'm really grateful, and I'm really proud to be a part of this community that God is gracing, to be able to help the community get right, stay right, be supplied, understand who God is, understand what he looks like, because folks in the world have no clue. And when we begin to act a little bit like him, at least least it gives them some kind of idea about the goodness and the kindness and the personality of our God. So I'm grateful for everybody who's been able to participate at whatever level you've been able to participate. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. In addition, here we are entering into our eighth month. We've just about completed seven in two days of doing church like this, a substitute for what is the real. And those of you who have journeyed with us and stuck with us this entire time, wow, you're outstanding, you're amazing, and I'm grateful. Thank you for participating. Thank you who are here today for exercising whatever you needed to exercise to get here. We appreciate that. And although the room is not full, it feels full by faith. Why? Because you come with faith. Thank you for coming with faith. You fill the room with your heart and your desire to be together. And although our our hugs are air hugs... And, and our handshakes or blinks, we, we work really, really hard at making sure that we can produce the atmosphere that is inviting to the presence of the Holy Spirit in this room, both on stage and in the chairs. And I'm grateful that don't, you don't just come to receive, but you come ready to give. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're going to uh, study today a little bit about what it means to be prepared to, to be transformed and distributed. Turn with me over to the book of John, chapter 2. The book of John, chapter 2. The title of the message is From Purification to Influence, Water to Wine. From Purification to Influence, Water to Wine. John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, verse 8. And he said to them, "Draw, draw draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This is the beginning of his signs. 
Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Lord, help us as we study your word. Three things in this passage about which I'd like to speak. One, the need. Two, the timing. And three, the filling. The last couple of weeks I've spoken to you, I've talked about the need for us to be pressed and what it means that God, for God to use the circumstances of life to encourage us to get in the right place so that we can find out what he wants to pour out of us for the benefit of others, to light others' paths to the world, to, of the world into the kingdom of God. And today I'd like to talk to you about the transforming nature of what it means to be a, a Christian that is always in the process of growth not stopping at certain spots because you have, arri have arrived at a spot at which you didn't used to be and feeling good about your progress. It's good, I'm glad you've arrived, but there's always more. And at the age of 59, I'm realizing that I'm not done yet. There's still growth that needs to happen in my life. Though there are a lot of things that I would like to be satisfied with and say, I can check that box. I don't have to go back there again. The Holy Spirit continues to remind me that there are more edges that need to be smoothed. There are more rough places that need to be sanded out. There's more character that needs to be developed in your life because I'm not done with you yet. And the more I can get you to be like me, the better you will be used as a tool to get done what I need to get done in your life and for people. So stay in my presence even though the circumstances don't seem to be conducive for growth at all. And it seems that every couple of weeks, new circumstances arise in this environment that don't have anything to do with the last one. It's just a piling on. It's like a landslide of boulders coming and hitting one after another, after another, after another. And I feel it straight on. And then I say, ooh, <laughs> that one didn't feel so good. And I'm getting to the place where now I, I realize, okay, it, it, um, I played football when I was in high school and college small college. I wasn't very good, but I was good enough to fool people into giving me a, a place where I didn't have to pay for college. And I know what it meant to hit people. As I got older in college, rather than just grade school, high school, as I got in college, I tried not to hit people because I was small. But I, but I knew when I caught the ball and I was going over the middle, I was going to be hit. Now, the re reality is before they developed all these new rules whereby you can't hit people a certain way, you were going to be tagged in such a way that you would lay on the ground for another 10 seconds after the play before you got up. Now you had to decide in that moment because the quarterback wasn't near as accurate as I would like him to be. If he was going to throw the ball in front of me like this, it was going to require me to stretch where the defender was a good 10 yards in front of me. I had a, knowing where the ball's coming, having a running start at me. If I was going like this, I was going to be completely vulnerable. And I was going to get tagged so bad, I would have to go to the sidelines after the play. All this is running through your brain as you're doing this. You have to decide, am I going to do this and protect myself? Or am I going to do this and help my team? Either way, you're going to get tagged. You're going to get hit. And so you have to make a decision beforehand, not then. I know it's going to happen. This is really going to hurt, but my team needs me to make this catch. <laughs> oh, did we get the first down? That's what it feels like every play, spiritually to me. 
every play. Am I going to do the things necessary to help my team? Or am I just going to drop the ball and quit? That's what it feels like. One boulder after another coming, coming, coming. And now at least it, it comes so rapidly and so often, I'm, I'm expecting them. I'm not expecting bad. I'm just realizing that in this world I will have tribulation. I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic. My God is going to give me the ability to, to endure this moment, if not overcome this moment. And so I stay in his presence realizing this boulder is going to only test the metal that God has wrought in my life through the difficult circumstances of yesterday. And as a result of that, I'm going to be able to withstand this much more today than I did the boulder yesterday. And so growth needs to happen in our lives, and that without cessation. We need to continue to be pressed into the image of God, regardless of what comes our way in this world. And here we've got a moment where Jesus is using a wedding to convey to the disciples some good stuff that they're going to have to put in their tool belt for later. Now, this wedding in Cana happens literally within the week of him being baptized by John the Baptist. And after that baptism, John the Baptist pretty much gives much of his staff to Jesus. Andrew, Philip, were both disciples of John the Baptist. And when John said, this is the one of whom I've told you, I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. You think I'm all that. And God is no question. He's anointed me. But him, I can't untie his sandals. And what that meant? was that the lowest servant in the house, when somebody came in as a guest, was required to wash the feet of the guests who came in. And they had to untie the sandals first. Remember, they didn't have pavement back then. There were no sidewalks of concrete. Everything was dirt. So when you walked in the house, the last thing you wanted was to put dirty feet on the couch, in the bed. And so you washed your feet, and the servant who was in the house did that for you. He said, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant in his house. You think I'm all that? That's where he is to me. Philip and Andrew said, oh, well, like, can we go with him? <laughs> Please do. I must decrease. He must increase. After that, some disciples came together. Andrew was the brother of Peter. And so <clears throat> they went up to, they, they were on their way to Galilee. They were at this, going to this wedding, and it says that the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and the disciples were invited. Now, it characterizes Jesus and the disciples as a contiguous group in this passage, but that's only in retrospect, meaning they got the invitation before they were disciples. A wedding went out by way of invitation at least a year in advance, at least a year in advance, because people had to plan for a wedding. I.e., if you lived in Jerusalem and the wedding was in Cana of Galilee, that's a 90-mile trek. A really good walker, single guy, single girl in great shape, could make it there 20 miles a day in about four and a half, five days. But you are trekking. I mean, you are moving, really, really moving, doing 20 miles a day. Walking, that's tough. If you were a family with little ones, you could do probably five to seven miles a day, and that would be difficult. So depending on how many people, if you had a caravan, if it was an entire first generation, second generation, grandkids, and maybe even great-grandkids, and you had to bring supplies with you, i.e. goats, camels, riding, donkeys, uh, supplies, it might take you three weeks of, of, of getting, walking just to get there. 
So the, the invitations had to go out a year in advance. It's not like our weddings, where you can send them out three months in advance. People take, you know, an hour to get ready for the wedding. They drive 20 minutes to the wedding. They stay for an hour. They stay for another hour and a half, two hours for the reception. They come back home. No, 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 no. You had to, this was a long vacation. In addition to the other moments you had to have to visit Jerusalem in order to participate in the feasts. So people had to plan around all of that. My point is that Jesus and the disciples, when it says that, it wasn't a group invitation. Oh, Jesus has disciples now, and we are going to invite them because they are holy men to the wedding. No, they probably got the invitation a year in advance, and the disciples became disciples of Jesus last week. But because they were all there, it says it like this in retrospect. And this wedding was typical of any wedding. It usually lasted a week. And why would you have a wedding that lasts a week? Because the last thing you wanted to do is if people took three weeks to get to you, to have a 30-minute celebration and have them go home. That, like, wasn't worth it. So you would make sure that they had an amazing time for the entire week. And the wedding was the culmination. The reception was really before. So everybody would party and enjoy themselves, fellowshipping with family, uh, Uncle Reuben and, and, and uh, Aunt, Aunt Sarah were there. Everybody would fellowship for an entire week, and it was a big, big moment. The host was required to have enough people for, enough food for all those people and enough drink for all those people. And wine was the favorite drink. The last thing you want to do if you're a host, is to run out of food. Not so good. It shows that either you didn't plan well or you didn't care. So it was, it was a requirement upon the host to make sure that everything was as it should be for an entire week, seven days, and then the wedding would happen at the very end. And here we have Jesus and his mother at this wedding. Why? Because it's in Cana, which happens to be a neighboring community of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. So if you, you look at the region of Galilee, let's say it's a little bit like northern Virginia proper. It's a little bit more contiguous than that, but it's Herndon and Reston and Sterling and Chantilly. And all these communities are really close together. Ours are a little bit further apart, you know, five, ten miles uh, and, and it would take you almost in a, a half a day if you walked to get there. Theirs were a little closer because they, 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 they really developed communities on the basis of how long it took to communicate with that community that was next to you. And they wanted to make business easy. So the communities were a little closer. But you get that feel of suburbs and different localities and governmental bodies in those suburbs. Cana and Nazareth and Bethsaida and, all, and Capernaum were all in the same region. And so if you were in Cana, you probably knew the people over in Nazareth. And you would send wedding invitations to all those folk. Mary was probably already in Nazareth. Jesus had gone down in order to do what needed to be done in Jerusalem so that John the Baptist could anoint him as king. You needed a prophet in order for every king to be legitimized in front of the people. That's what the baptism at the River Jordan was for Jesus. And so Jesus did that, and now he was heading back for this wedding. And lo and behold... They run out of wine. Now, the timing of this is really important. And you have to understand how the Greek reads. And I know you don't know Greek. But Greek helps a little in giving, giving color and texture to what you know in English. 
The word here for ran out, when, when um, it says they ran out of wine, is a word hysteria. And it doesn't mean that they were completely out. It has more the connotation of they were coming to the end. They were, they were almost depleted of their supply. People in the back room, in the kitchen, were saying, uh-oh, it's day six, and we only got two bottles left. Oh, boy, we're in trouble. We should, we should have been more, more judicious with our serving. Yeah, yeah. The bridegroom paid for all this, but now we don't have... Eh. Mary gets wind of it. And, and, and she goes to Jesus. She says, by the way, they're out of wine. And again, the context is they're almost out. This is important because how you understand what Jesus says next, really, really key. He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now, it sounds in the English like when he says woman, he's being very blunt and disrespectful. No. First of all, Jesus would never do that. He was the one who created the commandment, honor your mama and daddy. He wouldn't do that. It was actually a term of endearment. It's the same word that Jesus used when he saw Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but Mary Magdala at the tomb. He said Mary. It's the same word he used for Mary, his mother, when he was talking about her at the crucifixion, saying, um, woman, here's your son, and talking about how John needed to be uh, caring for her now. Same word, woman. And so it's not a term that's disrespectful. It's a term of endearment. It's one that says, okay, we're in this together. What does this have to do with us? And when you get to the point of understanding that it's a term of endearment, then the next part seems to be a little bit more affectionate and inquiring rather than trying to define his entire ministry, meaning my time has not yet come. And I don't think anything about the literature of the book of John, especially in chapters 1 and 2, speaks uh, where John is trying to convey in the ultimate everything that Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to be very orderly in his, in his articulation in timing and sequence. And so I think what's happening in this passage, and you'll have to give me a little, a little liberty this morning, because I've, I've read Albert Barnes, who is a fabulous commentator on the Old and New Testament. I mean, really, really good. And he helped me on this. He said, probably what's happening here is that since the context of running out of wine is hysteria, which means that they were coming to the end of it, but they had not come yet, Jesus is, is beginning to talk to his mama about the idea of, wait a minute now, they haven't finished the wine, have they? If they haven't finished it completely, it's, what does this have to do with you and me? Because I want to help them. But the timing isn't quite right. My time has not yet come. You want to know why God waits until the very last minute to help you. When you come to the end of your strength and you wished he had helped you yesterday or the day before, but he waits until everything seems like it's turning against you and there is absolutely no hope. Because at those moments, there is no possibility of mixture between your strength and his. There's no way where anybody can confuse that you did this on your own. It's all him. 
My timing is not yet come. What does this moment have to do with you and me? Not yet. I need him to completely run out. Because if there's a mixture of what they got left and what I'm going to put in there, they'll think, oh, well, we, they found some. <laughs> Ouch. I don't even like to preach that part. I wish God would help me in the front part. I wish he would get there in the middle, but he waits until there's no hope. <laughs> when everything seems like it's going to die. When the only possibility of life is resurrection. Death is complete. And the only way to get stuff out of death is resurrection power. Three days. How about Lazarus? Four. Four. Make sure he's good and dead. I don't even know what good and dead means when you're dead. <laughs> My time has not yet come. Not ready. Not ready. Just wait a minute. It's coming. Timing. This ought to give you some encouragement. Is God with you or not? Is he for you or not? Fear not. Don't be dismayed. The cavalry is riding over the hill because Calvary has happened. The cross has come and he has paid your penalty. He has died for your consequences and the thing that, that buttresses keeps hitting your brain is somehow you deserve this because you did something wrong or that God doesn't love you enough to fix whatever is wrong. Those two things keep hitting your brain all the time, especially when you feel like you have waited too long. Is he for you? And has he forgiven you? If those two questions are unalterably answered in the affirmative, then you can be confident that your God is going to deliver you into better and not worse. And that he is coming to your aid. He is just waiting. Because his time has not yet come. <laughs> what do you do next? Well, there's a feeling that's supposed to have happened. Mary says to all the, the, the people who are carrying the water parts, whatever he says to you, do it. He knows the right timing. He, know what, he knows what needs to be done. So just listen to him. Be close. Keep your ear open. When... When, it, when, when, you, when you feel like God should have done something and hadn't done something yet, keep your ear open because there's a timing issue. Whatever he says, do it. When they completely ran out, he says, okay, fill the pots. Fill the water pots. And you know what the water pots were? They weren't, they weren't pots from which they would draw water to drink. They were pots for purification. I don't know if you remember any place in the Gospels where the Pharisees blast Jesus, questioned him about his practices with his disciples. He says, how come, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? Now, the issue was not, the, the issue was not uh, uh, hygienics. My wife is the queen of clean. I'm telling you, you can't step in her kitchen without washing your hands. 
And she, if you're a guest in my house, she does not care about telling you, did you wash your hand? She, she emphatic. I have, I have a, a, a half a bathroom that is literally four feet away from the kitchen. I wash my hands when I come out of the bathroom. I got to wash them again when I walk in the kitchen. I'm not mad. We're healthy. We're healthy. I'm not mad. Queen of clean. But these, these purification pots were not those because they had, they had issues with germs. It was about making sure that you were ceremonially clean. That's what the purification pots were for. That you were presenting yourself before all mankind as having washed in the presence of God. Washing was a big thing in the, in the Hebrew culture. Having been to Israel now a couple of times, uh, baptism in the Christian culture <clears throat> came from the Old Testament washings in the, in, the, in, in the Jewish culture. It wasn't something new. John the Baptist did it. And, and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders that came out to see John the Baptist baptizing at the River Jordan, they were not questioning why he is baptizing people. They were questioning why he was baptizing people the way he was doing it. Because if you go to the temple in Jerusalem, which has been destroyed and rebuilt and now is occupied by a force that is not Christian in its orientation, and it's, it's not there anymore. But you will see the remnants of, I don't know, 20 or 30 baptismals, if you will. They call them, uh, um, I can't remember the Hebrew word, uh, forgive me. But they were baptismals all around the temple, on the outskirts of the temple. Dozens of them. And so it was a common practice. The Jews believed in cleansing themselves before God. And the purification pots were those who would help them purify their hands. But in this passage, it's important to note that Jesus is using this idea of the purification pots to be those which can be superimposed over your life to talk about how you need to be before you can be eligible to be turned from water to wine. Jesus is not just turning any water into wine. He's turning those who happen to be pots of purification those who have, have some degree of, of, of centeredness about what the gospel is and how important it is to obey on the inside. Some holiness, some purity. Those he wants to touch and then do something supernatural to take whatever they are and turn them into something else. Purification is important. Being the right kind of Christian is important. It's good to be able to have your spot secured in glory. Happy for you. But we are called to be holy as he is holy here on the earth. That's Bible. That's in Peter. We are called to walk like Jesus walked. 1 John 2.6. Right here in the Bible. We're called to do that. There should be very little distinction between who you are and who Jesus is. Now there's a huge gap. I get it. He's God. But as far as people are concerned, when they look at you, they ought not be able to tell any dichotomy between the two. They ought to be able to say, that is a, the, 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 the purest representation of Christ in the earth I have ever seen. You ought to mimic him in purity, in action, in speech, in thought. That's the way a disciple of Christ is supposed to be on the planet. To such a degree 
that the people who hated Jesus and crucified him, after Jesus had risen and gone to the Father, looked at the disciples who were there after him, doing the same stuff, and basically they said in breast paraphrase, didn't we kill that guy? Didn't we do away with him? These people are the exact same thing. They're, they're making people who were lame walk. They're preaching the same message. I thought, we, I thought we didn't we? But they're multiplied now. Ah! There ought to be no distinction. Holiness is important. Really important. And I beg you, be holy. Think right. Treat people well. When you have an opportunity to be bitter, don't. When you, when you don't want to forgive and, and want to exact revenge, forgive. Do the right thing. Be holy as he is holy. Because when you are, then the opportunity for transformation is right around the corner. It is right around the corner. And see, purification allows you to identify with God in a, in a certain way and to be identified as being his by others. But being the one who has his purification now transformed into wine, into influence, now you can take whatever God has done and let it be shared by other people, not just evidenced by other people. From purification to influence means that you are now somebody. Remember, no, no water was ever, was ever imbibed out of these pots. You didn't drink it. You just washed your hands in it. But now these pots were available to be used as that which would supply somebody with something to drink. They changed in their function. Wine was on the inside. Wine had never been on the inside of these water pots before. God was doing something on the inside that was miraculous. And you who have put yourself in a position to be pleasing to God as a result of the lifestyle you've chosen to live, of purity and holiness that is hard to do in a world that's going in the opposite direction. There is nothing about the reality of our version of life here, naturally, that is encouraging us to do anything right with God or for people. Everything is beckoning us to come the opposite direction. But when we choose to swim upstream, God is so pleased to be different in our orientation and to not be ashamed with identifying fully with who Jesus Christ is, even if it means we are laughed at or lose friends or ruin our credibility in certain environments. The only one with whom we need credibility is Almighty God. That's it. It doesn't mean we aren't looking for other people. To say, listen, I want to follow you because I see the character and I see the, the, the kind of, of, of representation you are before God and, and what it means to serve him. What I'm, look, what I'm trying to say is I'm not looking for man's approval in order to help me be me. What I am trying to do is please God every day of my life. And sooner or later, if I do that, I will be able to help man best. But as I get in my, my place of purification and repenting and making sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is working the way it should work in my life, I realize this, God, you, you want to transform what's on the inside of me into something that now can be an influence to others. There's no question that wine can influence you. 
I'm glad you all are looking at me like you don't know nothing about that. It will influence you. Alcohol will do stuff to you. And that's one of the reasons I don't imbibe. The, the main, it, none of them have to do, none of my reasons for not drinking alcohol have anything to do with religion. It has to do with my background. My daddy was an alcoholic. And I, 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 I know from my biology background <clears throat> and studying medicine and what it means for children to inherit things from their parents that if I start, I may not want to stop. I might just turn on epigenetically, if you know anything about that, turn on a gene. And then I'll go down the wrong direction. And here's a little thing. You ought to read a book called Do Fathers Matter, Dads? Do Fathers Matter? And it doesn't have much to do with the environmental impact that a father has on his children, meaning how he raises them, how he treats them, how he speaks to them, how he shows himself an example. It has everything to do with the genetic makeup of the father and the condition in which he finds himself when he, when he fathers a child, what his health is like what his psyche is like. It's by a guy named Rayburn. An excellent book. Doesn't have anything to do with spirituality, everything about the natural. <clears throat> but I realized that if I, if I start, because my dad was drinking when he was, when I was born, when I was conceived, gosh, there may be something that's, that turns on. And I don't feel like going that direction because I got enough problems. I got enough struggles in life. I don't need to add to my difficulty. Secondly, folk think, you know, in America, pastors ought not, ought not tip it over a little bit. It's not that they condemn them. They don't. They just now say, huh, and then they go on. They, ha they have a little, little speed bump. Not much of a hurdle, but a little speed bump. They got to say, oh, oh, he enjoys that. Okay. I'm, I'm good. I, did, I just didn't know. I didn't. I thought, I, oh, I'm good. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Not a problem. Not a problem. So I choose not to have it be a stumbling block to anybody else. But I've heard that it influences people. I've heard it influences people. And if you drink it enough, you're going to find yourself saying things that you probably ought not say. Doing things that are kind of uncharacteristic. And the grace of God is that which you then need to, to apply in order to be the kind of person that can still minister to people while you are being influenced by somebody else. Some, excuse me, something else. And that's the third reason I choose not to do it. Is that if I do it, do you know you all call me at strange hours? We get emails that are not not scheduled. Uh, folks at Pastor, can I have a minute with you? Well, what if I... <laughs> what if I'm influenced? I'm just saying. I choose not to. No judgment on what you choose to do. These are my convictions. I just know this. That Jesus says, I want to take you from the place of purification to influence. And Paul uses the idea of wine as being that which is similar to how we need to be influenced in the Holy Spirit. That we need to allow the Holy Spirit to dominate our thoughts, to influence our speech, to motivate our heart, and to be drawn out so that others can have the same experience. It says that the head waiter, 
began to, to sip the stuff that the, the, the waiters drew out from the water pots. And God is trying to draw you out so that you can be a benefit to others. This is where you need to take your faith to a new level, need to take your witness to a new level, need to take your body to a new level so you can minister to people. He wants you out there, not just to stay in. And as he draws and other people begin to taste, what, is you, what, what are you supposed to taste like? Said it was the best wine. The very best. Who does this? Nobody does this at a wedding. Nobody saves the best to the last. Why? Because after six days of folks being drunk, they don't care what the next drink tastes like. Their taste buds are gone. So nobody saves the best wine to the last because nobody cares at the end. But this one, they said, saved the best to the last. We're, we're the closest version to the last. We're as far away as you can get from the cross and the resurrection in time. Can't get any further. We're the closest version to the last. Doesn't mean that end times or now could be a bunch of versions of whatever end time. And I'll be teaching on this later in the year. End times can be. But here we are. And you ought to be the best version. We ought to be the best version that people taste of who Jesus is. Are you listening to me? God's waiting to transform your purification into your influence. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower us to be the kind of people who can serve you well in this area. Fill us with purity so that we can be eligible to influence others.